And good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5? If you're new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel on Sunday morning here at Calvary, and we are in a section that runs from chapter 5 to chapter 7, which uh, is called the Sermon on the Mount. Many call it also the Great Manifesto of the Kingdom. Because as Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom because we have received the king into our hearts to reign over our lives. And as citizens of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount then becomes the principles by which we live our lives to honor and glorify our king. Now, let's not forget the context here. Jesus is laying out the character and conduct of those who are members of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. But in so doing, he's he's correcting the misconceptions the disciples had gotten from the scribes and Pharisees over the years. And so starting in verse 21 and running through verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus has been giving, and we've been studying, God's original intent for the law. What did God actually mean when he said these things? How did he want it applied? And so on. He does so by touching on six different aspects of the law. Murder, adultery, divorce, honesty, demonstrating mercy instead of demanding justice, and loving our enemies. And six times he quotes from the rabbinic tradition of the scribes and Pharisees by saying, you have heard that it was said by those of old. And then after that he gives God's true interpretation when he said, but I say to you. Now, we've already looked at the first two, what the law had to say about murder and adultery. And last week we began with an introductory message looking at the third one, which we've just simply called God's command for marriage and divorce which is found in verses 31 and 2. So let's read those, where Jesus said, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, for any reason except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, needless to say, these verses have generated a lot of controversy over the years. In fact, I don't think there's another issue in the church that touches us where we live more than this one does. And Jesus' teaching on this subject is very difficult for many Christians to to deal with because they're simply not willing to obey what he has commanded. You know, we're living at a time, and the church has not been immune. It's come into the church, this uh, whole self-centered, man-centered kind of a approach to Christianity. Uh, That's what we're seeing today. Uh, the mentality today in the church, well, in the old days it used to be the cross. That was the focus of the church, the cross. The cross meant self-denial. The cross meant self-sacrifice. The cross meant putting others first, dying to self. The cross was sung every Sunday in every church. It dominated Christian hymnals for centuries. Today, we've become very man-centered in our approach to Christianity, where people in the church seem to believe that God exist to make them happy. You hear that mentality, you know, that God wants me happy, you know. Well, God wants you holy, I know that. But, you know, the idea today is that everything has become very man-centered. Now, this really shows up in marriage. It really shows up in marriage. It seems that our own personal desire for happiness has replaced everything and everyone else. We have allowed the culture on this subject to influence us more than we have influenced the culture when it comes to the marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And again, this is nothing more than allowing ourselves to be conformed to the spirit of the age. 
which places pleasure and personal fulfillment above commitment and sacrifice. Now, here's the deal. It's gotten so bad in America with regard to families and divorce and so on, even unbelievers are beginning to wake up and say, you know, there's a real problem here. All this self-actualization, self-love and so on is having some very detrimental effects on families across this country and, of course, indirectly, a great impact on the nation in general. Several years ago, there was an article that appeared in Newsweek magazine written by Susan Britt Jordan, who was commenting on a couple of her friends who had been married, but then when some difficult times came, they quickly ran out and got a divorce, and this troubled her. So she used it as kind of a springboard to talk about this subject. I'll just quote a small portion. She says, and I quote, My original objection was primarily to the flippancy with which we say goodbye to a mediocre or poor marriage. We are so selfish. We want our fun, and we want it now. We value pleasure above fidelity, loyalty, generosity, and duty. My friends may have remained married if they had stopped clutching greedily at pleasure. The spark might have returned if they had gently fanned the fire. And even if the spark never returned, they might nevertheless have lived lovingly and patiently and kindly together. There are worse fates, not the least of which, is finding another, even less satisfactory, second mate, end quote. Folks, the myth that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence is simply that it's a myth. Now, the two verses that we are looking at this morning on the subject of marriage, divorce, and then remarriage are really divided into two sections. Section 1, verse 31. Section 2, verse 32. Section 1, what the scribes and the Pharisees taught. Section 2, what God commanded. And so verse 31, we see what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. Jesus says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And that was the common teaching on divorce in those days. It goes back to something Moses said back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Why don't you turn there? That's where this reference comes out of that Jesus mentions. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, we read, when a man takes a wife and marries her. Now Moses is actually giving people God's law. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and just stop there. Everything that they taught about divorce hinged on this one statement by Moses. Of course, the proper understanding of the passage hinged on the correct interpretation of what some uncleanness meant. When you look at that verse, everything hinges on what some uncleanness means. Because that's what allows you to divorce or not divorce, right? Well, that obviously opened the door for various interpretations and gave rise to two main schools of thought on the subject. One was led by Rabbi Shammai. The other was led by Rabbi Hillel. Now, Rabbi Shammai held to a very narrow interpretation of this. He was the conservative. He said that, he said the uncleanness was that on their wedding night, he found out she wasn't a virgin. And that was the only legal grounds for a man to put away or divorce his wife. Representing the liberal view was Rabbi Hillel, who died only about 20 years before Jesus began his public ministry. 
His interpretation of uncleanness was actually very broad. And therefore, he taught that a man could divorce his wife for just about any trivial reason. Let me give you some examples, all right? If she was caught talking to another man in public, he could divorce her. If she let her hair down in public, cut her loose. If she burned the bread or put too much salt in his food. Now we're reaching a little bit, aren't we, all right? Get rid of her. Oh, here's one. He could divorce her for speaking ill of his mother. See, you, most of you ladies in here would be in big trouble on that one. Or if she was infertile. All these were, and there's many others, all of these were some of the grounds that a man could use to divorce his wife. Now, it even got so crazy that they started to interpret some uncleanness in her to mean that if he found another woman who was prettier than his wife, then his wife would now be considered unclean in his eyes. He could divorce his wife and marry the prettier gal. And so the Jewish people were divided, although not equally, as you might imagine, between the teachings of Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. Folks, this was a real hot-button issue back then. In fact, it was such a hot-button issue that divided, that so divided Jew against Jew that the Pharisees tried to use it against Jesus to kind of drag him into the controversy in the hopes that it would divide people against him. Turn to Matthew 19 once. And we want to look at verse, starting at verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Well, see, that was the school of Hillel, right? And the Pharisees were quoting, no doubt, Hillel and his teachings, okay? That was really the common mindset in Israel. Yes, you had a few that held to the conservative point of view, those were who really were zealous for God. But most of the nation followed the teachings of Rabbi Hillel because that's how they wanted to live, right? And so here comes the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. That's what it was. It was a setup, a trap. And they asked him, well, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Which betrays, of course, the low view that their society had sunk to with regard to marriage and divorce, just like our society today. Very low view of marriage and divorce. Well, in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That, that comes out of Genesis 1, verse 27. And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was a reference from Genesis 2. Verse 24, Jesus went on to say in verse 6, So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let not man separate. And that Greek word is a word that was used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, translated divorce. So what God has joined together, let not man divorce. Now, we're going to study in detail what these verses mean in Matthew 19 when we get there in a couple of years. But just kidding. Now, we'll study that in detail when we get there, okay? But I want to just continue the flow of where we are uh, as it pertains to Matthew 5. So in verse 7 of Matthew 19, they said to him, the Pharisees now, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce 
and to put her away. And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It was not God's original ideal for marriage. Okay? His ideal was one man, one woman coming together for life. That was God's ideal. But let me just say this. First of all, the Pharisees were wrong when they said Moses commanded a man to divorce his wife if he found some uncleanness in her. Jesus corrected them by saying it was not a command, it was a concession. A concession due to the hardness of men's hearts towards their wives in marriage. He's talking to the guys now. Because only the men in Israel had legal right to divorce their wives. The girls couldn't divorce their husbands. Of course, this put men in the driver's seat. And the poor girls had no recourse, really. If a guy wanted to divorce his wife, he could do it for pretty much any reason. And she was pretty much left out in the cold. The word hardness there, because of the hardness of your hearts, is the Greek word sclerosis, which means a gradual hardening. And this is what happens so often in marriage. Two people come together in marriage, and they're very kind to each other, and they love one another, and their hearts are tender toward each other. But you know what? If self is at the core of that marriage, and self-love and not God's unconditional love, what starts happening is their hearts start hardening toward each other when they can't get their way. And marriage is all about making concessions, isn't it? It's all about working together and and coming to agreement based on mutual give and take. But if you have a person or a couple that really it's all about what they want, then of course there's that butting of heads and hearts harden and eventually what started off as love and kindness turns into hatred and uh, resentment. And so because of the hardness and pride of the human heart, where people refuse to bend or forgive or give in, it often created a situation in the home that was intolerable. And so Moses, for that reason, allowed divorce. Look, it's not God's ideal that we divorce. It's not God's ideal that we let our hearts get so hard because we're so determined to get our way that after a while the marriage becomes so cemented, hearts are so hard that there's no more any connection going on. That's not God's intention, all right? His ideal is that we love each other, work together, die to self, sacrifice for one another. Unfortunately, we don't always live at the ideal, do we? I mean, the ideal is the goal, but we are fallen sinners saved by grace. We don't always attain to the ideal. I know I don't. Maybe you guys do. You're looking at me like, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe you guys are thinking, well, I do. I don't know, but I don't. I fall way short many times from God's ideal. And here's the situation. You have a, a marriage and you have a home where hearts have gotten so hard that now all there is is fighting and screaming and yelling and cursing and throwing stuff and breaking stuff. And the kids are living in this war zone. God is saying, you know what? If you've allowed your hearts to get that hard and you will not repent or give or bend or whatever, you know what? Then divorce is acceptable but not ideal. Not ideal. And even though Jesus acknowledged that this concession existed in the law of Moses, he didn't condone it, folks. He condemned it. He condemned it as being contrary to God's original design for marriage, which he then he quoted, of course, from Genesis 127 and chapter 2, verse 24, passages that we'll study at length when we get to Matthew 19. But just so you understand, nowhere in the scriptures does God ever command someone to get divorced, not even in the case of 
adultery. Do you know in 30 years of marriage, I have never once counseled somebody to get divorced. That is not my place. I've thought it. I've never counseled it. Because I don't know if God is going to give grace to work through this. I don't know that God might touch one of the hearts in that marriage or even both. Where they suddenly are pierced by their own selfishness and brought to a place of brokenness and surrender and God pours grace to heal that marriage. So that's not my place to tell people when to end their marriage. God joined them. It's not my place to tell them to tear themselves apart. So God has never commanded anyone to get divorced, even in the case of adultery. He permits divorce in the case of of adultery or other sexual sins, but he never commands it because God's first choice is always forgiveness and restoration. That's his first choice. Now, if we go back once again to the passage in Deuteronomy 24 that started all the controversy among the Jews, let's see what Moses actually said. They were using this to almost say, well, you have to get divorced. If you find some uncleanness in her, you've got to get divorced. As if Moses was pushing for divorce. Let's read what it says. Let's read the whole context, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, a couple of things I want to point out from this passage. First of all, this certificate of divorce was necessary because marriage was a legal contract, and so divorce had to be a legal process as well. You see, a woman had to have some kind of documentation, okay, to show that her husband had divorced her so that if she was seen out in public with another man or got married to another man, she would not be accused of being an adulteress. So this piece of paper was documentation that protected her reputation from slander and afforded her the legal right to remarry. Very important. And God only permitted such a divorce certificate If on the wedding night she was found out to be a virgin, or as Jesus said, that during the marriage she was guilty of some kind of sexual immorality. Now the Greek word there is porneia. We get our English word pornography from that Greek word. It's a very broad term. It doesn't just mean adultery. It means any sexual sin. But it doesn't have to be adultery. It could also be a reference to incest, homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality, etc., All of that were grounds, legal grounds in the eyes of God to divorce a spouse that engaged in those kinds of practices. Now, under Jewish law, it said that if a woman or a man, let's put it this way, the woman and the man, all right, who committed adultery were to be stoned, all right? That was what God originally said in the law. But here's what happened. Things got so bad in Israel morally, kind of like we see in America, that so many people were engaging in adultery and so on, that to actually carry out the death penalty for every incident of adultery and so on would have pretty much devastated the nation. Not many would have been left. 
Stop that at a gun. So God softened the law so that if there was adultery, then you could divorce the spouse and remarry another. It wasn't necessarily a death penalty associated with the sin of adultery because God, in his mercy, softened it. Okay? That's why Joseph, when he found out Mary was pregnant, tried to put her away quietly, right? He was a just man. Jesus, when the woman caught in the act of adultery, was brought to him by the Pharisees, and they said, look, we caught this woman in the very act. Well, if you did, where was the guy? Because they were both supposed to be stoned. It was a setup, I believe, okay? Drag this woman in front of Jesus. The law says she should be stoned. What do you say? Trying to polarize people, you know, into different groups. And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what. Anyone among you who has no sin cast the first stone. Well, obviously that wasn't going to work, so they peeled off and went home. A woman was standing there alone and said, she, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? And she said, I guess I have none. He said, Well, then neither do I accuse you, but what? Go and sin no more. The standard still exists just because God softens it in his mercy so that we all don't get wiped out. I mean, God did this with the church, by the way. The first sin in the church was the sin of hypocrisy on the part of Ananias and Sapphira, right? They claimed that they had sold a piece of property and brought all the money and gave it to the apostles for the work of the church when they kept some of it back for themselves. But they lied. They claimed they had given it all. And God struck them dead in the spot for the sin of lying and hypocrisy. Well, good heavens, if that was still God's standard today, if that was how God dealt with all hypocrites and liars in the church, guess what? We'd hear crickets chirping in this place, but no people. We'd all be wiped out. So God in his mercy sometimes, because we're all sinners, saved by grace in the church, sometimes he backs off from his ideal. But that doesn't mean the ideal goes away. That doesn't mean he still wants the ideal. It's something we should shoot for. But when we fall short, there is mercy and forgiveness, right? Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> Otherwise, every time we say, you know, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. There'd be carnage all over the church. People would be dropping dead like flies. Anyways, all right. But the second thing I want you to see here is that the Pharisees were using Deuteronomy 24 to teach that Moses commanded a man to divorce his wife if he found an uncleanness in her. He had to divorce her. Now, we've already dealt with that, but I wanted to, just to show you one other thing from this passage because I want you to see the passage here in Deuteronomy 24 is actually based on a couple of conditional clauses. All right, Let's go back. Verse 1. Again, Moses said, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if, verse 3, that's the first conditional clause, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if, second conditional clause, the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then, verse 4, the former husband who divorced her, listen, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. I bring this up because I want you to see that far from commanding divorce, Moses is actually trying to discourage it by simply stating the consequences if a man went through with it. He is saying, look, if you divorce her 
and she marries someone else, even if that man divorces her or he dies, you are forbidden from remarrying her. And he goes on to give the reason, because she has been defiled. The Hebrew was disqualified from being your wife. It is an abomination before the Lord to take her back. Why? Well, I believe that when God attached this restriction to divorce, it was to make a man think twice before he divorced his wife. Why? Because if he divorced her on a whim and she went out and was quickly proposed to by another guy and married, remarried quickly, then even if the second guy divorces her or he dies, the first husband could not. He was forbidden from remarrying her. What did this protect against? Well, it protected the girls from a lot of things, number one. But it, it, one of the things it protected them against was legalized adultery, legalized wife swapping. And if you wanted to have an affair Friday night, you divorce your wife Friday morning, had your affair Saturday morning, you proposed to her again. Everything nice and legal, right? No, God says, absolutely not. I know how your hearts work, God is saying. I know what you're, you know. If I let you, you would use this as a, a legal justification for adultery. You divorce each other, have your fling, come back, remarry each other. God says, uh-uh, not happening. All right, that's what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. Let's quickly look at what God commanded. We find it in verse 32. Jesus said, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Look, in the eyes of God, unbiblical divorce doesn't end the marriage covenant. Let me say it again. In the eyes of God, unbiblical divorce does not end the marriage covenant, which means to remarry is to commit adultery. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, A man or a woman who has no right to divorce has no right to remarry. To do so initiates a whole chain of adultery because remarriage after illegitimate divorce results in illegitimate and adulterous relationships for all parties involved, end quote. All right, Jesus has now corrected the faulty teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage that was being disseminated by the scribes and Pharisees, giving us in the process God's righteous command regarding it. Hear me out, though. As far as I'm concerned... The whole point of the passage hinges on how Jesus wanted this applied into their lives and into our lives. See, it's pretty simple what he's saying. But how does he actually want it applied? Sounds simple too, doesn't it? But it gets confusing. The whole passage hinges on how Jesus wanted this applied into their lives and into our lives. Listen. There are many in the church, maybe you've talked to a few. I have. Not in our church, but in the church. There are many in the church who apply what Jesus said this way. They say that what Jesus expects Christians to do, if they've gotten divorced for unbiblical reasons and are now remarried, is to divorce their second spouse and return to their first spouse, because not to do so means they are living and will continue to live in a perpetual state of adultery. Even, they say, if they're on their third marriage, and they've been married to this person for ten years and have five kids with that person, they still need to divorce and return to their first spouse because God never recognized any of those other marriages since the original marriage ended for unbiblical reasons. Maybe you've heard that teaching. Folks, let me just say this. 
I absolutely disagree with that. I do not believe that's what Jesus wanted people in that kind of a situation to do. I don't believe that's the application that we get from what he said. First of all, God hates divorce. Not only because it destroys something beautiful he has created, and a marriage is a creation of God, the Bible tells us, where he joins two people together as one. So it destroys something beautiful God has created. Number two, he hates it because it damages two people he loves through the tearing apart of two lives that he has glued together. In marriage, God glues two people together so that they become one with each other. Divorce tears that apart, and it's very painful and very damaging. But also, God hates divorce because it hurts and damages the kids. You know, one of the classic passages on this subject comes out of Malachi 2, verses 13 through 16. Let me read it to you out of the New Living Translation. Here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his And what does he want? He wants godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Listen. Divorce, any divorce, for unbiblical reasons is sin. And it does deep damage to everybody involved. And so to teach that God doesn't recognize the subsequent marriages of people who have gotten divorced for unbiblical reasons, but now wants them to end their new family to try to make up for their former sins, to me is ridiculous. Listen to me. A further disobedience never makes up for a former disobedience in God's eyes. Let me say it again. Divorce is disobedience, all right? Another divorce, another disobedience never makes up for a former disobedience in God's eyes. So you might be thinking to yourself, so then what is the point of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 31, uh, chapter 5, verses 31 and 2? How was he looking for it to be applied? Well, remember that he was speaking to a culture, not unlike ours, but a culture that had dragged marriage, and especially the commitment involved in marriage, down into the mud by making marriage and divorce no big deal. No big deal. It was no longer a lifelong commitment that two people entered into by vowing to stay by each other's sides in sickness and health, richer, poorer, good times, hard times, until death separated them from each other. That's what God intended. No, the scribes and Pharisees had dragged it down and were teaching quick and easy divorce because, guess what, that's how they wanted to live. That's how they wanted to live. They wanted to have the ability to bail on their spouses if things got rough or if a better deal came along. In other words, they found a prettier gal. They wanted to have the freedom to bail on their, on their spouses. So they really taught a low view of marriage and divorce because that's really where they were coming from. 
And yet, and here's what I don't want you to miss, and yet they were feeling as though they were keeping the law and therefore were righteous in God's eyes because they interpreted it in such a way as that they could violate the spirit of the law and yet maintain the letter and feel in the process very righteous and justified in God's sight. What is Jesus doing again in this section? He is correcting their faulty view of the law. What God actually meant when he said these things and how God wanted wanted it applied into their lives. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it how? Lawfully. If we use the law for the purpose God created it, it's good. Well, what was the purpose God created it for? Well, Romans 3.20, Paul said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. God never gave the law. When you think of the law, think of the Ten Commandments. God never gave the law so that people could keep them to earn heaven. None of us can earn heaven, right? So anyone who teaches you, like the scribes and Pharisees were teaching, that to get into heaven, you've got to be just really good, and you've got to keep all these commandments... And then you'll earn heaven as a scribe or a Pharisee and they're not giving you the real purpose of the law. It was not intended to make people righteous. What did Paul say? For by the law is the, the knowledge of sin. See, that's the whole point here. When Jesus taught in this passage that anyone who had been divorced for reasons other than sexual sin was guilty of adultery, his point, and listen to this carefully, was to use the law to bring them into the knowledge of their sin so that they would repent and receive him as Lord and Savior. Again, the Pharisees were using the law to make people think that they could keep it and be righteous. Jesus is saying, no, you can't keep the law. To get into heaven, we have to be perfect, he would say in Matthew 19. The most moral person in this world is not perfect. We have all violated God's perfect standard. Therefore, all of us, are guilty of falling short of God's glory, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law is good if you let it break you, break you of self-effort, of self-worth. Oh, I'm worthy. I'm good enough to get into heaven. Watch me work. Watch me. I go help at the soup kitchen every week. You know, I'm always, you know, helping poor people. You know, it's got to break you of all of that so that you would fall on your knees and cry out to God for another way that you might be saved by. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Is there another way, Lord, that I can reach heaven someday? Yes, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You won't get there unless you come through me. Look, his purpose in this teaching wasn't to tell Christians who have gotten divorced for unbiblical reasons that and are now married to somebody else, and maybe they've been married to the second person for 20 years, His intention was not to tell them, well, you have to divorce that person now and go back and remarry your first spouse. You know, folks, think about that. I would dare say the people that come up with these things are not generally pastors who live in the real world and work with real people. They're sitting around a coffee shop somewhere discussing doctrine all day long from an ivory tower position and are not in the trenches with real people and real families that, no, don't always reach the ideal, but you know what? God still loves them. I mean, that teaching, think about this. Well, you, you got married and divorced for unbiblical reasons 20 years ago. 
And I know you've been married to this gal now for 20 years and you have six kids by her. That doesn't matter in God's eyes. You need to divorce this person, go back, and remarry your first spouse. Do you recognize that that would be to drop a WMD, a weapon of mass destruction, into the midst of families? It would blow them to pieces and much of the church along with it. And it would do irreparable damage to the children, the very thing God does not want to happen. These kids are damaged enough. We're going to add to that as the church? And is that really what Jesus wants to create more chaos in families, devastate more kids? Look, as a pastor, I have seen people who wanted to do God's will, but for whatever reason fell short. They wanted their marriages to work, but they failed. And they're broken, and they're devastated. And they cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. And I believe God forgives because we're all sinners saved by grace. And while the ideal is great and legalists always live at the level of the ideal uh, for everybody else. I'm not so sure they actually live there for themselves. Jesus told the Pharisees, you know, you lay heavy burdens on people that you yourselves are not willing to move with one of your fingers. That's a legalist. All right. Telling the rest of us how to live while they, you know, don't really practice it themselves. Look, as I just said, we are living in a less than ideal world. The church should be doing better than the world. Unfortunately, I don't think we are with regard to marriage and divorce. But folks, it is what it is. To demand people live at the level of the ideal when they're just not there, what do we do? We throw everybody out of the church because they're not living up to some standard? I mean, guys, let me just say this. As the old saying goes, you can't unscramble an egg. It is what it is. And I'm so thankful that our God is merciful. When we don't measure up to the standard, the perfect ideal. Divorce is a serious sin, but it's not an unforgivable sin. Praise the Lord. Sometimes divorce becomes necessary, but it should never be entered into lightly. It should never be the first choice. God hates divorce and is glorified through forgiveness and restoration. Now, let me just close by saying this, because I know that some of you are thinking here this morning, or when this gets out on the radio, I'm going to have a lot of people thinking this. I can just hear the wheels turning, okay? People will say, but you said earlier, unbiblical divorce doesn't end the marriage in God's eyes. And so if somebody gets divorced for unbiblical reasons and then remarries, doesn't that mean that they will live in a perpetual state of adultery? Yes, until they repent. Well, now wait a minute, Pastor. Repentance means change. If they truly repent, doesn't that mean they're going to change back to their prior spouse for God to forgive them? Look, the word repentance literally means to have a change of mind. That brings about a change of direction. Okay? That doesn't mean you can go back and correct all your past sins. It just means your life is turned around now and you understand what God has said and you really want to live that way. You know, there are people that have actually murdered people. And then in prison, they have repented and received Christ, right? The direction of their life has changed. But they can't go back and resurrect the person they murdered. They, some sins you can't undo. And I believe this is one of those times. I believe that to try to undo and make restitution for a past sin like divorce 
by getting divorced from this new person you're married to, destroying this new family that you have, just to try to erase the past sin of divorce, is not what God wants. It's not what God wants. Again, I don't think there are some sins you can undo. Now, we repent. We acknowledge that we have done wrong. If you're not a Christian, you turn your life to Christ and become a Christian. If, when you committed this sin, you lived at a level in your Christianity that was still very carnal and selfish, and now you've grown and want to go farther with God and walk uh, in greater obedience, wonderful. But sometimes, folks, we just can't undo the former sins that we have done. And I don't believe God wants us to go out and commit further sin to erase a prior disobedience. And some teach, well, yeah, but see, they're going to live in a perpetual state of adultery for the rest of their lives. Well, think that through for a second. What does that mean? That if they die, then they're going to go to hell? That adultery is, and remarriage is the, is the unforgivable sin? I thought the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, this idea that I can't really be forgiven until I do certain things, that's unbiblical too. God's forgiveness of me is not dependent on what I do. It's dependent on what Jesus has done. And no, I'm not advocating divorce. I'm not trying to soften the severity of it. I'm trying to walk a balance between condoning it and condemning those who have gotten divorced. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are all growing in Christ. And the Bible says we're going to fall. We're going to stumble. And when we do, if we repent and confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So, again, the purpose was not to condemn those who have been engaged in this kind of thing. It was just to simply put the law back where God intended it so that it was used to bring conviction and repentance and salvation and not to try to undo past sins that you can never uh, undo. Just repent and move on now with the Lord. Father, we thank you for your grace, your amazing grace. And Lord, we, we know that we often fall short of your ideal. I'm so thankful, Lord, that when we fall short of the ideal, you don't say no deal and kick us out of the family. You're gracious, you're merciful, you're forgiving, but you tell us go and sin no more. Do better next time. Draw closer to me. I'll give you the strength to be what I want you to be. If you fall, I'll pick you up. I'll dust you off. I'll put my arms around you. I will forgive you if you confess it. And we'll start moving forward again. Thank you, Lord. That's the kind of God you are. That when we stumble and fall, you don't stand above us, pointing a finger at us, condemning us. But you stoop down, pick us up, and we start all over again. We just thank you, Lord. We don't want to be soft on sin because you're so gracious. Give us a heart that hates sin, Lord, because it grieves your heart. Give us the grace to do better, to live in greater obedience, to be a brighter light to those in darkness. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.